Welcome, listener. My name is Tim William Söldner. I'm a master's student in rhetoric at the University of Copenhagen, and I'm now also a student fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Today, I will talk about war rhetoric with a very special guest who I can't wait to introduce and talk to. But first, what is war rhetoric? War rhetoric has in many ways shaped the course of history and been used as a tool of power by governments, leaders, and dictators. War rhetoric often involves persuasive and emotionally charged language to rally support or justify military actions. Examples of war rhetoric could be dehumanizing the enemy as subhuman, evil, or barbaric to reduce empathy and justify a conflict. Or it could be demonizing the enemy's leaders as tyrants, dictators, or war criminals to justify intervention. War rhetoric can be a powerful tool in shaping public opinion and generating support for military actions. But it also raises ethical questions about manipulation of emotions, information, and its consequences for the democracy and public debate. Therefore, it's important to understand and critically evaluate and analyze such rhetoric. And that's what we're going to do today. And as I mentioned, I have a pleasure of getting to talk to a person, rhetorician, professor, and war rhetoric extraordinaire, who to me has been one of those names on almost every syllabus I've had during the last four years of studying rhetoric. That's why I can't even express how much of a pleasure it is to welcome Professor Emeritus in English, Rhetoric, and American Studies, Robert L. Ivey, who has published countless articles and books on the topic of war rhetoric. Welcome, Robert. Well, doesn't it sound easy? <laughs> just an overflight of war rhetoric and its effect in just 30 minutes. Well, you've done a good job of uh, covering the terrain. Of, oh, thank you. Thank what you. we typically mean by by war rhetoric. So, um, but, but let's just get the ball rolling. So first of all, I wanted to ask you, for those who doesn't even know that there is an academic field called rhetoric, what is rhetoric? Well, there's sort of a double meaning. Um, there's an academic understanding of what rhetoric means. And then there's um, a popular use of the term. And, and usually when you you don't like what somebody has said, you accuse them of engaging in rhetoric. And that that's a condemnation of uh, their uh, language as if it's being um, overwrought and um, if it's, as if it's not uh, honest or accurate and uh, maybe even propagandistic. But in academic circles, um, it's a term that gets at the study of language that functions as a suasory device and it functions not just explicitly and consciously, but it functions sort of systematically in articulating culture and um, all sorts of phenomena, as well as how we go about uh, speaking um, our opinions to one another. So in many ways, our language is forming uh, the structure for how we think of a particular topic, and this in turn can eventually shape how we act. Yeah, language has certain kinds of dynamics, and they take various kinds of form, and um, they kind of work their their will on us in a certain ways if we're not uh, alert enough to them. What is then war when we think of, of it as something rhetorical? What is it that drives war rhetoric? Well, um, when nation states and peoples are managing conflict situations and things 
heat up and they talk about them, they the very talk that they engage in to explain uh, or state their reasons for um, uh, engaging in conflict are what we call, uh, we, what we think about as uh, the practice of rhetoric. So that allows us to use the concept of rhetoric to try to understand better what dynamics are, are driving um, that talk. And perhaps, um, often is the case, exaggerating the sense of the threat and, mm -hmm. and uh, delimiting the sense of options to the use of uh, warfare. So in many ways, the use of war rhetoric can carry some kind of a political and cultural ideologies that are warlike and can eventually turn into war responses. I, I would agree with that characterization. Yeah. I think, in fact, um, it's almost uh, inevitable mm -hmm. that the, um, the, the dynamics you're talking about, um, the ideological dimensions, for example, um, are going to be expressed and developed uh, in a way that we could call rhetorical. Um, so rhetoric is, is one way of seeing through this kind of discourse that's associated with uh, trying to explain or trying to um, advocate for um, hostile actions. I know you've written a book called Hunt the Devil, a Demonology of U.S. War Culture. What is the effect of such demonization and war rhetoric in general on society, democracy, public debate? I, I guess I, I would I would answer that question by by, by making three or four points. Mm -hmm. One of them would be that it's important to recognize that war rhetoric is a very dangerous discourse. And another would be, you've already pointed to this, that it operates as a process of dehumanizing and demonizing. And it's doubly difficult to resist this rhetorical force in a case like, um, current case like Ukraine, Mm -hmm. um, and which is a point I'll elaborate on, but um, that kind of what I would call rhetorical creep that evolves um, kind of narrows and oversimplifies our perspective on our our sense of security or insecurity. So, so that's that's what's at stake, I think, with 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 war rhetoric. If if you'd like, I'd be happy to elaborate on those points. Some yeah. um, when I say it's dangerous. What I mean is that um, in the broadest sense, war rhetoric is very totalizing. It eliminates gray areas. It, it reduces the room to maneuver for negotiation. And there is, as I mentioned, this, this process that I call rhetorical creep, where the very dynamic of the language that one's using, once it, it, it escalates, it has momentum, it um, it moves toward the perfection of its terms, the, the ultimate culmination, which means extremeness. Um, so if you take a term like security, it, it through this rhetorical creep, eventually evolves so that you reach a, a, deadly, um, a deadly point of no return. Mm. Um, there you, you have, you've, you've, you've talked yourself into a corner the language of war rhetoric uh, is it affects our thinking it it, it it affects our perception 
it forms our attitudes. And, and it's important to remember that attitudes are predispositions to action. So it sets us up to move in a certain direction. Uh, the presumption is that's the way we're going. And it takes a lot to, to, to reverse that, that momentum. And it's very difficult to rectify even when it's recognized. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Political and economic elites are committed to certain perspectives that have been framed rhetorically and have the resources and uh, the presumption. And it's very, it's very difficult to, to, to critique what has been uh, formulated rhetorically. Um, so that, that's, why I, that's why war rhetoric is very, very dangerous. You have been in the... Uh, rhetorical field for a long time. You've published books, as I said, articles, uh, etc. on this topic. Um, what would you say to me, who is a rhetoric student, just getting started, looking at being or being curious about war rhetoric? How can my or anyone's closer examination of war rhetoric guide us towards a more peaceful future? I, I think it's important to th think about this culturally. Um, a lot of You know, as as you mentioned, uh, my focus has been uh, my rhetorical focus has been on uh, on U.S. culture, and so I, I've always felt that it's important to um, to recognize that rhetoric is culturally grounded. Um, if if we try to be too abstract about it and generalize too universally, uh, I think we get um, too far above the ground, mm -hmm. and so I, I think it's important for us to uh, think about these these uh, these problems in terms of the cultural dynamics of um, the um, uh, place that we're, we are finding ourselves focused on most as as scholars, whether we're located in in Denmark or in the US or in South Africa or any other place in the country. So that would be one point I'd make. Another point I'd make is that um, When, when I started my study of war rhetoric, and it started with my doctoral work, I had just finished my master's degree uh, when my time to go on active duty for the Vietnam War came about. And once I was had completed my active duty, I went back to do my doctoral uh, studies with, with the question of how do we talk ourselves into war? <laughs> That later evolved into the question of how might we talk ourselves out of war? But... Um, But that was really my my question. The Vietnam experience was very formative for me, and as you could see, grounded very much in um, in uh, the, the U.S. experience. So uh, I, I, I when I started uh, my research, um, there was some work available for me to draw on in the field of rhetoric, but relatively little. And of that work there was to draw on, it wasn't all highly critically conscious. It was, <laughs> um, some of it tried to just be objective, descriptive. Some of it was uh, really more along the lines of, uh, say, supporting uh, the, uh, the rhetoric of the Roosevelt administration to fight the Great War against uh, um, Germany and its allies. So uh, there was kind of a poverty of, of scholarship in rhetoric on, on the matter of war rhetoric. 
since that time, uh, you know, any student who would be starting now, there is quite a quite a good body of scholarship available in um, in a variety of journals in the field, and um, obviously that's a that's something that needs to be mined uh, in order to um, get a, to build on um, what insights different scholars have had um, uh, to get a sense of uh, uh, where perhaps from a contem more contemporary point of view, you might think there's uh, a need for um, altering some of the assumptions uh, that were guiding that that previous research, or adapting to uh, the the circumstances of the culture in which you're operating, and on which you're operating. So, but there is a body of scholarship that can now be consulted and can be engaged, um, and can be helpful, um, both in terms of giving you something to build on, and in terms of giving something to think about, in terms of new fresher approaches you might take as circumstances change, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so those are two things um, that that come to my mind immediately. I will try my best to build on that. <laughs> <laughs> and people say you shouldn't, as I said in the beginning, you shouldn't meet your idol because you, you might be disappointed, but you have proved that completely wrong. This has been... <laughs> well, huge, thank you. Huge, huge and, and thank you for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs>